This is Rabbi Josh Uter of the Stanton Street Shul. Thank you for downloading this class podcast. These classes are provided free of charge through the generosity of the Stanton Street Shul community and supporters like you. If you do enjoy them, please consider making a donation to our synagogue's building fund on our website's shop donate page at www.stantonstshul.com. Hello, everyone. Today is Sunday morning, April 14th, 2013. Welcome back. Uh, for those listening online, sorry if the audio quality is a little bit weirder. The batteries for my recorder have died, which I only found out when I got here. So we're going to try to record this off of the cell phone. All right. Um, we have a really fantastic class, I think, today. Um, you know, we're coming back from several weeks off because of Pesach, and we're going to start today um, in our halachic process series, discussions on early Ashkenaz. And before we even get to the sources here, it's really important to discuss a bit of methodology first. Previously, we've been working on Rambam. Rambam is really easy to study for a couple of reasons. One, Rambam is only one person, so you can compare Rambam to Rambam. Two, when it comes to his halachic ideology, he lays it out straight for you, particularly in the introduction to the Mishnah Torah. Right? Pretty easy to just know, hey, what does Rambam say? When you get to, say, the Ba'alei Tosafot, the operative word is Ba'alei. There are many of them. In fact, you've got dozens of rabbis, maybe about dozen, uh, dozens of rabbis, maybe a dozen prominent ones, spanning generations living all over Europe, uh, who are going to have a lot of different opinions. Which means, if you find one opinion by one of the Ba'alei Tosafot, it doesn't necessarily mean that another one needs to abide by that. So it's very tempting to come up with one uniform ideology for all the Ba'alei Tosafot, even though that might not actually be accurate, right? Because, you know, we want to have larger systems, and when you go through really big systems, you wind up ignoring contradictory <coughs> data. So it's very important to keep that in mind, that you're not talking about one individual, you're talking really more about a school of thought. And you can find comparisons within the school of thought, uh, and you might find trends within a school of thought, but in order for you to say that such an idea is uniform amongst the school of thought, you have to demonstrate that. Additionally, even if you want to say that this a position is dominant amongst the Bali Tosafot, you have to judge that, you have to evaluate that too. So today we're not going to do either one of those. We're going to scale back the claims to what we're actually going to be able to demonstrate in this particular class. The subject of Bali Tosafot and Halakha is itself now being currently debated in academic scholarship. Uh, due to a book recently published by Talia Fishman that has been, uh, that's a good word, critiqued harshly by Dr. Chaim Soloveitchik online. Uh, there was a response by Talia Fishman, a rejoinder, and on his own personal website, Chaim Soloveitchik wrote a much, much longer response where he explained methodological issues that he found in Talia Fishman's book. Go ahead, read everything. You'll be a wiser person for it. Um, so again, today we're going to focus on 
primary sources as much as we can. I will say that, you know, in preparing this was somewhat influenced by scholarship and particularly uh, Israel Tashma's book, Minhag Yisrael Kadmon, uh, Orbach, Ephraim Orbach, uh, is a two-volume work on the Ba'ali Tosafot where he goes through things in much greater detail. But instead of relying on those, I wanted to focus specifically on what certain things I could find the Tosafot. I picked, I mean, obviously things that I knew of, um, but also um, uh, try to pick passages that might be a little bit more relevant uh, so you can actually see the contrasts. Um, and one final point in terms of, you know, why, you know, I avoid, you know, dealing with it is not only because it's dealing with Ashkenaz is a little bit out of my area of expertise because there's so many details to go through. Many people just know the Tosafot as being commentators on the Talmud. And most of the sources here are from the commentators on the Talmud, but there are a whole lot more writings. Uh, now we have a whole lot more writings, you have variant manuscripts of those writings. So you really have to do a whole lot of research to make most uh, definitive statements about even what Rabbeinu Tam said. All right. One, another reason why I avoid discussing Tosafot is unlike Rambam, where he writes everything straight based on topic, for the parts where the Tosafot comment on the Talmud, it's hard to even begin to understand the Tosafot unless you understand the Talmud on which they're commenting. Not only that, but they will often, even when commenting on one passage of the Talmud, they're going to refer to another passage of the Talmud. So you have to know not just the Gemara that they're talking about, but all of their citations in order for the argument to make sense. All right? So, again, with that in mind, those are the disclaimers. Beginning with the Tosafot, I wanted to have section one uh, to show that they can, on occasion, act as legal positivists, by which I mean the first two uh, Tosafot that we're going to see would sort of, you know, almost put the Ba'ali Tosafot, or at least what's quoted here in the Tosafot, as almost Maimonidean, right? And we're going to see some sources later on how it would explicitly contradict Maimonidean, uh, uh, the Maimonidean approach to halacha, all right? But first, what, but it's important to see the contrast, again, if nothing else to show, it's you, you have to be very careful in making general statements about the Ba'alei Tosafot because there's so much data out there from so many different sources. You can't make statements unless you know that there isn't contradictory data. Um, or at least you have to be precise enough in your argument or whatever it is that you want to posit or in terms of describing Tosafot that there isn't data that contradicts it because unfortunately people tend to do that which is oh I found a bunch of evidence that says this you know that agrees with the way I think it ought to be and as far as this other stuff that seems to contradict eh, those are anomalies those are exceptions but unless you actually deal with those you can no question so Ed welcome back Please start us off with a Gemara in Beitza 5b. And you'll also notice here that we're going to start with a Gemara in Beitza, but the Tosafot that we're discussing is in Sanhedrin. And you'll see when we read the Tosafot why that is. Go ahead. Consider it is written, be ready against the third day, come not near a woman. Then what is the purpose of go say to them, return ye to your tents, and for therefrom that every prohibition decided by a majority vote requires another majority vote to rescind it. This is referring to the Shalosha Yemei Hagbalah, right? the three days of separation. Before the Jews could receive the Torah, God says, you know what, separate, you know, be prepared for three days, separate from your women, and afterwards, you know, so, okay, you know, go back to your wives. 
Why did it say go back to your wife? So according to this Gemara in Beitza, it shows that everything that was done, it says here, Tavar Shebiminyan, anything that was done is a... Um, which incidentally is a very weird statement because this is a commandment from God. So saying something that is from God is which indicates a plurality, you know, not just a majority, but a plurality, a whole lot of different entities, is odd. I will, I will stipulate that from the outset. Idiomatically in the Gemara, what it means is when there is an act of legislation, you need another act of, act of legislation to overturn it. What's unusual about this case, and this is where the Tosword is going to address is, there seemed to have been a time limit attached, right? In which case, even if, according you know, to Pshat and the Gemara, which Tosword is going to address, if I say, let's say, you cannot park on the sidewalk for the next seven days, after the next seven days, I still need to another legislative act to overturn it to enable you to park. Now I take the Tosvot in Sanhedrin 59b. Um, when it says SV, that refers to the Dibor Hamachel. Let's do the Tosvot first and then ask the question. Rashi explains that anything which is prohibited through legislation of quorum, even if it is established with a set time, requires another quorum to permit it after the time passes. Exactly as I explained before, that's how Rush explains particular Gemara in Sanhedrin. And he explains from the verse, do not approach the women, which did not have a set time, and it is written, be prepared for three days to receive the Torah on the third day. But for something which is set for a specific time, when the time passes, it becomes permitted immediately. And if you say that something was decreed without qualification, it is obvious that it requires a quorum to overturn it. It is still required. Meaning to mention that that is the law. For I might have said that since the reason which motivated the prohibition was passed, then certainly it ought to be permitted, such as what we mentioned regarding abstaining from marital relations before accepting the Torah. And this is what we find in B. Betza 5a that the fourth year vineyard fruit was to be brought to Jerusalem from all places within a radius of one day's journey in order to decorate the streets of Jerusalem with fruits. Even after the destruction of the temple, a quorum is required to overturn the obligation of this practice. I should also mention that since there's no English translation of the Tosafot, these are mine. So I might tweak it before it goes online, but I take full responsibility for these. I want to comment. This yeah. makes absolutely no sense. Okay. It's dogmatic. You must have another legislation. Mm. To Let me explain. Let me explain. It's not just pure dogma. This is the, almost, again, the Maimonidean, it seems to be very much the Maimonidean approach. Here's where he disagrees with Rashi, right? In the approach that I described earlier, if I have a time limit, right, if I say this is a temporary measure, this lasts for 30 days, right? According to the way Rashi explains, I need another act of legislation at the end of 30 days to rescind it. Tosavot says no, or at least in this Tosavot, they say, wait a second. Once, if the decree is only for 30 days, then after 30 days, it's, it's okay. Right. Exactly. However, here the Tosanotes say, if the, uh, if the reason for the, you still need to mention this, because if the reason for the law is no longer there, the law is still applicable. Meaning, in terms of the automatic, uh, I would say, a nom- I would say an expiration date would be a better word. When you have a time limit in the decree, it has a built-in expiration date. 
But if there was a logical reason for it, and that reason no longer applies, according to this Tosafot, the law is still applicable. The example being, um, as described in Gemara and Beitza cited, uh, you were supposed to bring the fourth year vineyard fruits, that was the best way you could describe um, the Kerem Revai, to Jerusalem, because you wanted to make Jerusalem filled with fruits. Right? Made it look nicer. And according to this Tosafot, even after the destruction of the temple, you still did that. Why? Because that was the decree. And in order to overturn that decree, you need to have another act of legislation. Not unlike what we kept saying under the Maimonidean system, you know, in order, uh, you know, with the comparisons to American law, until Congress overturns a law, right, that's the law in the books. Or technically, Supreme Court can overturn the law based on constitutionality. But you need something within the legal process to overturn a law. It cannot happen automatically. The only exception of Tosafot, according to here, is a built-in expiration date. Questions? One, what happened to Batel? I said, remember, this is how they're acting as legal positivists. We're going to see sources that will contradict this logic. Right? That's why this is only source one. Yeah. How do we interpret the one day's travel? Uh, is that by airplane? By not, not completely off topic, but yeah, separate I mean, question. I, what concept that they have of one It's day's a completely travel? different question off topic. Cannot get into that. So first of all, I don't understand Ross, the whole logic of the Talmud in the first place, and maybe that's off topic. So if, if it is, never mind. And second, um, how, with this, if I understand it correctly, you're saying Rashi's rule still applies except when the rule makes sense. So in other words, the law automatically expires only when it doesn't have a logical explanation? No, no, it's not a matter of logical, meaning I don't say logical explanation as much as if the motivation for the reason is no longer there, mm -hmm. then the law is still there, as opposed to an expiration date, which is you know, where it just goes poof, it self-destructs, right? Does that make any more sense? So, oh, in other words, they're saying the, you, if, the, if the reason for the law is not there, you need legislation. But that only applies when there's no expiration date. Correct. Oh, okay. Well, that makes much sense. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Yeah. The notion also of form. Um, there were certain rabbis who said you can't have an error. Yeah, we, we discussed that. That's way back in Rama. What does it mean? Tavarshav and Minyan really refers to at least the Sanhedrin. Right, that like oh, the big okay. you know group. It's not just like a whole bunch of rabbis get together and do something. Yeah, you're you're talking about uh, a minyan of a Sanhedrin that has the legal authority to make these decisions. Okay. Well, we can all together here, you know, start passing laws, mm -hmm. you know, and it's not going to make a bit of difference in either New York City, New York State, certainly not federal level. All right, can you do uh, two? Uh, this is another example where uh, the Bali Tosafot seem to act kind of like Rambam. All right. First the Gemara Psachim, and then the Tosaf uh, Psachim 50b, and then the Tosaf Psachim on 51a. Um, the statement actually crosses pages, so go ahead. That which is, which is permitted, but others treat as prohibited, it is not permitted to permit in front of them. Right. We've seen this before. We've seen this before. It's a way of, you know, think of it as communal respect. If there's a community that has a certain practice to be strict, you're not allowed to, in public or in front of them, flaunt their customs. Yeah, that, right? that makes it yeah, easier to understand. Right. However, we have a very fascinating exception in the Tosafot here. Go ahead. Rabbanu Nisim answered in Megillah Sederim that those permitted practices which others prohibited are when it is known that those actions are permitted and they wish to act stringently on themselves. 
And thus it seems that that which is permitted, but others act incorrectly thinking that it's forbidden. In these cases, one may act permissively in front of them. This is a huge exception, meaning if it's a matter of communal norm, then I have to follow it as a matter of respect. But let's say they're just wrong. Right? And what they're doing, they actually think is prohibited. According to this Tosafot and Psachim, 51a, I'm allowed to act permissively in front of them, almost to show them, hey, you guys are doing something wrong. Right? Now think about what this means. This assumes that there is an objective standard of law that you could determine this is objectively asur and this is objectively mutar, this is objectively prohibited versus objectively permitted, such that you know, hey, they're acting it, but they th even though they may not be violating anything by acting stringently, the mere fact that they think their humrah, that their stringency is law itself, is enough of a reason for me to go out in their face and say, hey, wait a second, this ain't right. Right? And we discussed this a little bit more in the uh, class that we did on Minhagim, in the class of custom. But you can see that this Tosafot would seem to put, you know, put the objective halacha, or at least the integrity of an objective halacha, over what people happen to do if they're mistaken. This would suggest that a, a zealous reformed Jew would come into this group and take off his hat and sit there like that. If he'd be zealous about his rights to be without a head covering. It would depend on how it's, something is portrayed. So, for example, and I give this example um, for Bialy Stucker, right? Because um, uh, it's an easy access for most people here. In the downstairs, at least, there's a sign on the, on the shtender where there's a chazin you know, who leads services davens. And it says, it is the custom of this community that the shaliyah tzibor who's ever leading services wears either a hat or a talit over the head. In that formulation, they're saying explicitly, this is the custom of this community. Mm. They're not saying it's law. They're saying it's custom. Had they said it is forbidden to pray without a talit over your head or a hat, then according to this Tosafot, I would be within my rights to use a keeper or, or, or at least any other head covering, meaning not to do a head covering. And that's a very important distinction, right? They're very explicit that it is a custom. And since it is a custom, it is presented as such, and it doesn't violate Jewish law, you have the obligation to follow it. Once they, if they would phrase it in such a way that's a distortion of Jewish law, then you can now, according to, again, this particular Tosafot, ignore it. All right? Yeah. Who has, who has uh, sufficient status to say you guys are wrong? Again, it assumes an objective criteria for what is halakha or what is asur. So, for example, here's how I can do it, right? At least following the shita of Rambam. Because, again, this Tosafot implies legal positivism. You're accustomed to thing in Rambam and saying, wow, you say this is prohibited. Well, there are only two types of prohibitions. A biblical prohibition and rabbinic prohibition. Either one of them needs a source. So if you want to tell me this is prohibited, I can say, great, show me. And not just show me, but show me from the acceptable sources of, or at least the Talmud, like open up a Babylonian Talmud, show me the prohibition. Right? And unless he can do that, you know, the burden, if I want to argue that something is prohibited or something is obligatory, the burden is on me to prove to you how or why and to provide sources. To just simply say it's us or because blah, 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 that could be a very you know, good reason, but who came up with that? Right? Not everyone has the right to come up with new prohibitions. 
and you have to trace it back to at least, you know, the Talmud. If you even if you want to say it's prohibited because, you know, the rabbi set this up as the custom of the community, and people are using the term Yisur in a very general sense to apply to what was initially set up as the local custom, that might be something else, right? But usually, if someone's making up a prohibition, you've got to prove it. Right? Or not, I shouldn't say that. So if someone's making up a prohibition, they're not actually, you know, having anything to prove. But if someone's argue prohibition, you can say prove it. Or if you know for a fact that something isn't there, or you know for a fact that, hey, this was a mistaken custom and you know where it started, and you say, yeah, they're just wrong on here. So It also assumes you know what the basis of their action is. You know whether they're mm whether they're uh, doing it because they're taking it on stringently or because they misread the law. Also true. Also true. But a misreading of the law. I mean, again, the language of the Tosafot here is, um, uh, which model? It's very much even, Devarim Shinohagim Mahmat Ta'ut. Right? So it's, it's, it, there's a difference between a difference of an opinion. The language of the Tosafot here is specifically Ta'ut. There's a mistake. Right? And I think that's an important distinction there, too. Meaning, there's a difference between someone has an honest dispute and say, I read the text one way, you read the text another way, versus you're just plain wrong. The fact that Tosafot can use this word ta'ut, you're mistaken, again means you are working with some objective criteria by which you can evaluate other people's actions. Mm-hmm. All right? But an also wonderful point, we'll see that in the next uh, group of uh, sources. So the next two sources are uh, from the Sefer Hayashar of Rabbeinu Tan, considered, you know, the, uh, I don't know what's the good word, uh, really the first or foremost of the Ba'alei Tosafot. When did uh, Rabbi Tan? Uh, I'm driving like 1200 something, I think I could be wrong on that. Uh, so 11, 1200. Yeah, 1200, give or take. But, you take us, so this is from Sefer Yeshar of the Responsa, and these, uh, the next two sources are excerpts uh, that I found courtesy of Tashma's Ashkenaz um, Kadmon. So please, George. Um, and whoever is not an expert in the order of uh, Rabbi Amram, the Gayon. Meaning uh, Rabbi Amram Gaon. I had to fill in, you know, some explanations here. And uh, the Halacha. Uh, you know, the Baal Halacha Gedolo uh, to is uh, Shimon Kayara, a Jewish Babylonian halachist of the first half of the ninth century. And the tractate of Sofirim in the Pirkei of Rabbi Eliezer. It's Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer. Midrash Rabbah. And the Talmud and in the rest of the books of Agada, one cannot besmirch the words of the previous ones and their customs because it is because they are relying on the things which do not contradict our Talmud, but rather add to it, and we have many customs in our hands uh, on their authority. Yeah, so this is a fascinating snippet here um, that was also the subject of a debate between, you know, Fishman and Soloveitchik in terms of how this was quoted. Um, so for one, he's, uh, Rabbeinu Tam is arguing that before you start bashing a custom, you need to know pretty much everything because you don't know what the source of the custom is. And in terms of the legitimacy of the source of a custom, he doesn't just include halachic material, he includes a lot of agadic material. However, the main argument here is um, that these customs do not contradict the Talmud. They don't come to overturn it, but rather they add on to it. 
right? Which is a fascinating, you know, there, there are a lot of, you know, in, intriguing details here, right? Because not only are you relying on a lot of other sources, right, for these, um, whatchamacallit, for these minhagei kudumim, for these older kadmonim, uh, I'm sorry, like particularly these older, well-established customs, which Bali Tosafot, you know, will tend to accept, or um, uh, I don't know what's a good word for it, uh, well, not just accept, they will hold with a great deal more seriousness than they will newer customs, like if it was old and well-established, say, well, you know, unless you know all of this stuff, you can't besmirch it because, you know, we have a lot of customs based on them. By implication, it would seem, if it does contradict the Talmud, well, maybe you could argue with them, all right? Because it would only make sense if the Minhanta custom doesn't violate rabbinic law. Yeah. So the implication is that they, in fact, never came up with anything that violated rabbinic law. Um, kind of. I mean, it's hard to say which, I mean, I mean this, this particular truth I was said in one particular context, but if you want to take it in a general statement, yes. And then, but he's also saying that anything new that they institute has the same authority as the Talmud. Um, kind of. Uh, the analogy that, um, or at least the way Tashma explains it, is that for the Ba'alei Tosafot, the text of the Talmud was like the Torah Shebechtav, was like the written law, and the customs and the way it was practiced was like the Torah Shebechtav, was like the oral law. That's how he explained the, the relationship, such that the practice was the living Torah, so to speak. Yeah. It's sort of moving things up in terms of uh, acceptance as law. Yep, absolutely. Now, in certain ways, it doesn't contradict the Rambam, right? Because remember what we said before, there are laws of minhagim. There are times when you have a rabbinic commandment to follow customs, right? Provided you don't actually violate the Gemara, but here, it's almost like bumping that, you know, the status up slightly. It seems like, look, at the end of the day, you can say, well, this is the custom and you still have to do it. But there's a very subtle distinction in terms of how much halakhic force you're giving it. So custom in terms of law? Almost effectively, in the sense that you have to do it with the same, you know, reverence uh, as you would a rabbinic law. Can you take the next one? This is uh, from Sefer Yashar. Uh, sorry, the first one was from Sefer Yashar 45. This is from Sefer Yashar 48. And if you do not believe in the words of the earlier ones and their customs, you also do not believe in the Babylonian Talmud. This is a lot more explicit right here. Yeah. For we find the sages of the Talmud chose for them the Jerusalem Talmud. As we find Rabzera uh, sat 100 fasts to forget the Babylonian Talmud. And there are a whole bunch of other examples here. And we say, the heir of Israel makes one wise. Rather, our customs are Torah. Ela minha genu Torahi. And Babylonian customs based on the sages of Israel are the fundamentals of teaching, halachic practice, and therefore one may rely on our Gaonim and Savaraic rabbis. So the money quote here is minha genu Torahi that the actual customs or our received tradition of what we do has the status of Torah. All right. Now that's a fairly, you know, that's a much bigger jump than saying, you know, there are options and like they're subject to change. 
Because the whole point of a minog is you can have a minogamakum here and a minogamakum there, and hagen can change with relative ease. Right? We saw that when we did the Gemara class on Minhagen. Makom shenahagu ex osim ex. The place that does something, you do it that way. Place that does not, you do it that way. Once you start saying Minhagen with Taraki, it's like, whoa now. Right? Now, it's like, yes, it was okay. Can you now start going about changing it? Well, not as much. Because how could you change one of these earlier laws? Or what can you now go back and institute? Right? So this is already a very different approach to custom that Rabbeinu Tam here is advocating that we had not seen before in this class. Certainly, this idiom of minhagen or any form of minhag being Torah does not appear anywhere in the Babylonian or, to my knowledge, the Jerusalem Talmud. Right? So you could argue that maybe this, in fact, was an innovation as well. This comes a little bit more to light in the remaining sources where we're going to see that despite the positivist arguments of the first um, examples in the Tosafot that we saw, where Tosafot will argue that popular custom does, or at least in certain cases, supplant Talmudic law. All right? Here's the first one. Gemara in Erevin 17b, uh, and this subject was actually um, discussed by uh, Chaim Soloveitchik at length in other articles. According to the Gemara, they are exempt from the washing of the hands of Bayi stated, this was taught only in respect to the washing before a meal, but the washing after a meal, meaning ma'im achronim, is obligatory. Rav Chia Bar Ashi stated, why did the rabbis rule that washing after a meal is obligatory? Because there exists a certain sedamitic salt that causes blindness. Malach sedomit yesh. Okay. What do Tosavot say there? Now we do not, uh, on seven, again, Erevin 17b, now we do not keep the practice of washing my machronim, for we no longer have the sodomic salt by us. Or alternatively, we no longer keep the practice because we are not accustomed to dipping our fingers in salt after eating. Now this is explicit contradiction to what we saw from Tosvot earlier. The logic here is batel ta'am batel gezerah. Or even if you, I mean, which is, the reason no longer applies, therefore the law goes away, but note the language that he's using. Ashav lo nahagu. Today we don't do this. What's the focus here? It's not so much, hey, this is a real legit Talmudic, uh, um, you know, it's, how to put this, more of a reconstruction or a rationalization of the practice that has already become common. And this is a you know, nice distinction between Rambam and Tosafot. We saw the response by Rambam overstanding during the Aseret to Dibrot, where when they said, oh, you know, they do it in Baghdad, he said the fact that they do it in Baghdad is no proof at all, because if we found sick people in Baghdad, we wouldn't make ourselves sick to be like them, but we try to help them as much as possible. Right? His assumption is there's law, and there's law. Right? And if you have a large group of people who aren't keeping the law, they're wrong. Right? Plain and simple. Tosafot here seem to say, well, our practice is not to do it. So I was like, well, why is our practice not to do it? You have what seemingly, language of the Gemara is fairly explicit. You have an obligation to do this. Lo and behold, the popular practice is not to do something which is clearly explicitly required by Gemara without any contradiction. So he comes up with a reason for it to justify what the practice is. Except in this case, unlike what we saw with Rabbeinu Tam earlier, this practice does in fact contradict the Gemara. Oh, so they try to come up with a reason why not, but that logic is also contradicted by another Tosafist statement. Ed, take the next one. 
This is a Gemara in Beitza 30a. Rabba, son of Rabbi Hanin, said to Abaya, We have learned you may not clap the hands or slap the thighs or dance on Shabbat. Or Yom Tov it should be. Now read the Tosafot. Rashi explains the reason why dancing, clapping, etc. is prohibited is because one may come to fix a musical instrument. Yeah, that reason Rashi didn't just make up, the Gemara later on in 36b gives that reason, okay? However, by us it is permitted because it is only in their days where there were experts in making musical instruments it was appropriate to make the decree. But by us, we are not such experts in making musical instruments. There is no reason for the decree. Yeah. Right? This is saying, by us, it's permitted. Again, the argument is, the reason for the decree no longer applies. Therefore, the halacha no longer applies. Sounds good to me. Well, not just, I mean, uh, we'll do one more. Rabbi Yashua Bar-Levi also said, women are under obligation to read the Megillah since they also profited by the Megillah, the miracle they wrought, then wrought. Right, meaning, since women were involved in the miracle, they've got the same obligations. Here's the Tosafot Megillah, also 4a. From here, it seems that women can fulfill others for their obligations, since it does not, whatever that means. Meaning, if a woman, a woman can read it on behalf of someone else. Okay. And it does not say to hear the reading of the Megillah. And so it also seems from Arachim 2b. Meaning the Babli Arachim 2b. That's the Talmud. Which states that all are valid for reading the Megillah, and it includes that all are valid includes whom. And we learn it comes to include women, even to read to fulfill the obligation of men. And this is difficult, for we find in Tosessa that a Tumkum cannot exempt himself nor other Tumtums. And an androgynous exempts his type, and not, but not those who are not. And this is obvious since a woman is not superior to an androgynous. And so the halacha rules that women fulfill their own obligations, but cannot exempt their men, men from theirs. And there is to say in response, it is not helpful to them to read even to exempt other women. Therefore, it comes as each they are obligated. Everyone is obligated to listen to the kill of slaves, women, and minors. So here, he actually basically amends the Gemara. He has a problem based on the Tosefta. And even though the Gemara says, Mashim Chayavot B'mikra Megillah, women can read, uh, women have an obligation, I'm sorry, uh, to read the Megillah, right? Then, all right, so let me actually, let me take a step back here. General rule in halacha is kol hayatzah, well, not just kol hayatzah mozi. It's whoever fulfills, uh, sorry, that's the wrong one. I can, help, I can help someone else fulfill their obligation of a mitzvah if we are both on the same level of obligation or if I'm higher. Meaning there are many things for which women are exempt or, you know, or uh, obligated on some of a lesser level. I can still fulfill their obligation because somewhat superior. But if there is an equal one, anyone could be, uh, fulfill the obligation for someone else. So an example, you know, even before we get to this, is Kiddush. Normally, a man says Kiddush for the household. But since a woman's obligation in Kiddush is identical to that of a man, a woman can say Kiddush on behalf of a man because the degree of obligation is identical. All right? Now, you apply this to reading the Megillah. According to the Gemara, right, a woman is obligated to read the Megillah, which is identical to the obligation that a man has. 
So based on the pure logic, since their obligations are identical, there's no halakhic reason why a woman cannot read on behalf of a man, and a man fulfills his obligation by listening to a woman read the Megillah. That's pshat in the Gemara. Tosot, though, has an issue with that based on a Tosefta. And because he doesn't like the comparison with the Tumtum and Androgynos, although truth is the end of the Tosefta is a better argument, whole separate discussion on that, he says, well, it must mean not that they are obligated to read the Megillah, but they're obligated to hear the Megillah. Why does the Gemara say what it means? It means so that they can read for each other and maybe be prohibited and, and fulfill obligations for each other. I mean, women can read on behalf of women. Problem is, of course, that's not what the Gemara says. Right? You know, pretty straightforward here. Yeah? Where does the authority come for deciding the levels between various groups? Usually it's the Gemara. You know, that will set something up. Or it could be like something like time-bound positive commandments or things like that. You know, um, let's say reciting the Omer. Right? Here's a good one. So that's a positive time-bound commandment. So I'm saying it with a bracha. Right? I have a you know obligation to say I can fulfill the obligation of a woman. Right? But if a woman and like a woman can answer Amin, feels great. Now, assuming women you know have any sort of obligation, we'll actually get to that in a, in a second. But if a woman says, you know, and I answer Amin to her bracha, I'm not Yotze. Right? Okay. So what do we have so far here? Any thoughts? So and so androgynous people can't read the Megillah. Um, another town. No, uh, so, right. A tumtum cannot, a tumtum, yes, cannot read the Megillah and fulfill even for himself. What's a tumtum? So a tumtum is someone who, ha I mean, no or ambiguous genitalia. Androgynous is um, both genitalia. Mm -hmm. So what's the logic behind men and, and I realize this is a androgynous, why, why are those people below both men and women? Uh, it, well, it's more the androgynous, not the tum-tum, okay. right? Because the tum-tum could be a man, mm -hmm. right? That's why I might say, you know, wouldn't be superior because it could be, could go either way, right? That's where it gets a little complicated, mm -hmm. right? So ask you, aside from, you know, the specific details, anything about the halakhic methodology so far in the Tosafot that we've seen? It seems to be kind of fluid. Mm-hmm. Seems to be kind of fluid. Anything else? Okay. I want to do the last source because it does get a little bit complicated with a few different things here. Um, and this is a very important Gemara, um, which I'll discuss for you know, reasons at the end, especially regarding feminism. So Gemara Ta'anit, and this is um, for background purposes, says as follows. On 18 days in the year, an individual worshiper completes the Hallel. And they are the eight days of the Feast of Tabernacles, meaning Sukkot, eight days of Hanukkah, first day of Passover, festival of the Pentecost. But in the diaspora, the Hallel is completed on 21 days. And basically, it's all the days mentioned before, only an extra day for Pesach, uh, Sukkot, and Shavuot, because you have you know, Yom Tov Shani. Right? Then there's a case. So Rav once came to Babylonia, and he noticed they recited Hallel on the new moon. At first, he thought of stopping them, but when he saw that they omitted parts of it, he remarked, it is clearly evident that this is an old ancestral custom with them. And I've discussed here in Shul numerous times why I don't say halal with a bracha on Rosh Chodesh. Gemara and Erechen explicitly says you don't. Uh, say you don't complete the halal on Rosh Chodesh. And the question is, you know, saying, 
you know, having this blessing over a mitzvah when there is no mitzvah, right? We saw uh, a while back the Gemara in Shabbat regarding uh, Hanukkah candles. Like, how do you say Sher Kisham Tam Tivanu on Hanukkah candles when God didn't command Hanukkah candles? And the answer given is, either lo yatsir aminu small, you don't deviate to the left or right, or shema zichav yegeda chazikei necha v'yomru lach, you have to listen to your elders, listen to your sages. But that applies when there's an actual rabbinic decree. Rosh Chodesh, there's no rabbinic decree, so, you know, that seems to be an issue. So Rabbi thought of stopping them, but he says, you know what, they're skipping. Okay, fine. Keep that in, ha- in mind. There are 18 days, or 18 or 21 days, when you have a rabbinic obligation to say halal. Okay? To the exclusion of any other day of the year. Brachot, 14 eight, says, Gomerim? Gomerim, anything for Gomer means to complete the halal. And in fact... That means Hatsi versus... Right. So a right. good, a good rule of thumb is, whenever we do the half halal, is a day that I won't say a bracha, which would be Rosh Chodesh, and it would be the last days of Pesach. Yom HaTzmud is coming up. Separate question. Bracha 14a says as follows. Rabbi said, on the days on which the individual says the complete Hallel, meaning on those 18 or 21 days, he may interrupt between one section and another, but not in the middle of a section. On the days on which the individual does not say the complete Hallel, he may interrupt even in the middle of a section. All right? That's the Gemara and Bracha. Here's what Tosafot say, and I'm going to stipulate that I um, cut out a lot of this Tosafot. It's a massive one. takes up the better part of the page. So I only took out the parts I thought would be relevant for our discussion, and I just really had no desire to translate the whole thing, to be frank. Anyway, here's how he goes. Uh, in the middle of uh, Tosafot 14a, it is written in Master Vitri that since it is only a custom to recite Ha'an Rosh Kodesh, we do not recite the blessing over it. As it says in Sukkah 44b, that we do not recite, the blessing, recite a blessing over a custom. Now keep in mind, this isn't just Rambam now. This is Master Vitri, which is attributed to the school of Rashi. And still, uh, and the case in Sukkah 44b refers to, anyone know about a custom that we do on Sukkot? Specific custom? The Hoshanot. Yeah. You don't, you doctor don't say a bracha on the Hoshanot. And still, Rabbeinu Tam says, remember the same Rabbeinu Tam that we saw in the Sefer Yash earlier, says there is no proof from shaking the Aravot, where it is definite that we do not recite the blessing. But for a commandment, it is obvious that we recite the blessing, for we see every second day of Yom Tov is only a custom. And we recite blessings. This answers the question that you asked in an email. According to Tosfot, Yom Toshani is just a minhag, and we say blessings over it. According to Rabbeinu Tam, uh, and here it seems, uh, and uh, and here too it seems that we recite the blessing over Hallel. For if we do not recite the blessing, then what's the relevance of discussing an interruption? Meaning, the problem with an interruption is a hefsek. Right? Uh, certain times you can do interruptions and certain times you can't. So if you're not saying the blessing, then what's the problem? Uh, Rabbeinu Tom asks. And another proof that we recite blessings over customs is from Rav, who attended the synagogue. And if they did not bless at the beginning, why did Rav not sense that it was a custom until he noticed them skipping? Meaning the argument is, if Rav, who entered the, sh- uh, the shul when they were saying Halalan Rosh Chodesh, got annoyed, why didn't he stop them when they said the bracha? Why did he, was he only okay with it once he saw them skipping, then it was fine? Once he saw that they weren't saying it with a bracha, should be all okay. Rather, it is certain that they recited the blessings because we bless over customs. And therefore, 
since he did not sense that it was a custom until he recognized the, until he recognized the skipping. Uh, until he recognized the skipping. And there are those who wish to say that an individual who recited the hollow in days which is, when it is not completed, uh, not to recite the blessing. Rosh Shimon Bar Mikutsi would say that since, I'm sorry, Rosh Shimon, who's also a Sar Mikutsi, would say that since one wishes to obligate himself, one recites the blessing, and it is not a worthless blessing. For behold, women recite blessings over Lulav and Tillin, even though they are not obligated in those respective commandments. That's what I was going to give as an example. <laughs> well, now you know where it came from. So here's the Tosafot that says, you bless over customs, even though Asher Kibishan is inaccurate. And one of his reasons for it is another statement that seemed to have been in practice at the time of women that would take a lulav in etrog and say, Asher Kibishan Lulav, or uh, over putting on tillin which is fascinating in its own right, because this tells you, back in their day, women put on tzillin. Yes. And women put on tzillin with a bracha. <laughs> it's also really important, and I've given this argument to feminist friends of mine to show, you know, one of my issues with feminist halacha is when it comes to women reading the Megillah, they will follow the street Gemara over Tosafot. But when it comes to women doing all this other stuff, they're following the Tosafot over the Gemara. And there's no halachic um, consistency there in terms of what is your method of what's considered a practice. It's an argument I've had with uh, people over time that I've not gotten a straight answer with this yet. But it's a very important you know, question to ask on feminist halachas of what are your rules for defining halacha. If you follow Tosafot, or at least if not Tosafot, Tosafot's methodology, which incorporates popular practice as an equal um, level of law. Anyway, slight digression there, but only a slight one. End of the day, what I can say definitively is that there is at least a significant um, trend in Tosafist thought that is antithetical to the halachic method described by the Rambam. And I could even argue antithetical to even just what the Gemara says. Because there seems to be an um, inclination, the truth is Tosavo would do this, you know, not infrequently, to say, well, here's the Gemara, but I have a difficulty with the Gemara, so here's what it really means, even though that's not what the Gemara actually says. I mean, I could, there are other ways of interpreting even these cases where you're not forced to say these particular answers, right? It's almost like if I have a question on a Gemara, I can list, you know, a dozen or so answers. Why it must something be the case? Something must only be the case if there are, in fact, no other possibilities, right? In which case you happen to be choosing one possibility over the other. So what we've seen today is a few sources where the Tosafists sound like Rambam. Sources from Rabbeinu Tam that puts Minhag on the level of Torah and a bunch of other Gemaras that, you know, have where they're actually supplanting Talmudic law. Now, what is the real Tosafot? I don't know. Simply because I have not looked at every single Tosafist piece of information to make such an evaluation. Um, I'm not even going to start doing things and, you know, making a survey. But it's important to say it's not exclusive but you can say there's an inconsistency. And you could try to rationalize away the inconsistency to harmonize. No, they're really all saying the same thing, but in effect, you're acting like a Tosafist. These Balei Tosafot 
I think are um, incredibly influential in terms of style, form, content, and logical argumentation for pretty much all halakhic literature down the line because they will write like the Ba'alei Tosafot with the dialectic of questions and answers. You will find willingness to place minhag over halakha, rationalizing existing customs, anything of those sorts. Um, right. Yeah. Sorry about that buzz. I actually got a text message of all times <laughs> when I'm recording on my phone. Um, how can then somebody say, <clears throat> this is the halakha, or this is the practice that we have to have, if you have contradictory sources, yeah. and, and as you said before, uh, cite me a source for what I said. There was a bit of a monkey wrench into the whole halakhic system as a matter of law, doesn't it? Because now you're taking in the cult. Yes, or I take it a step further, you're basically justifying whatever it is that people do. As QED, what we do is right. Again, that assumption was explicitly rejected by Rambam, and it's something that Tosafot, at least in certain occasions, will embrace. And that is, it's hard to say like deviation, because in terms of like they were working with two different models and two different systems of an approach to halakha. The Tosafot system, I could argue, might not really be law in the sense if you're relying on practice, unless you justify, well, why is, excuse me, why is practice so good? And if you're assuming, well, I mean, we, and we discussed this a little bit earlier in like the source of rabbinic authority of what is, you know, misorah uh, in terms of like relying on certain traditions and the like. Um, but again, th this is where things, I don't want to say break down as much as here's things where you'll certainly find more splintering and forking such that in, you know, the rabbinic logic using fork in the software term, if anyone's familiar with that. Um, when you read like later sources and some of this stuff applies today, it's really not rhyme or reason anymore as much as justifying through pill pull uh, uh, casuistry, whatever it is that you want to reach the conclusion of, because all you need Right, is to find some justification for what people already do. So, you know, like possession is nine-tenths of the law. The assumption here seems to be popular practice is nine-tenths of halacha, and you need to now go back and find out why. Are these schools that change over time? That's part of the academic stuff that is way beyond my pay grade. Uh, simply because, like, the, 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 it's a wonderful question. It's a worthwhile question. I can give you the best reading material, sadly, that I have is in Hebrew. How good is your academic Hebrew? The academic Hebrew I actually find easier than, you know, popular Hebrew. The, the, there are huge fields about this that is well beyond my field of expertise, such that I don't feel comfortable even speculating, but it is a worthwhile question and is certainly worth researching in terms of the specific, you know, logical evolution of the Bali Tosafot. Chaim Soloveitchik spends a lot of time in his writings taking one practice like Maimachronim or Stamyenam and showing how even amongst, you know, the Tosafist scholars, you had nuances of thought there and what they might represent and differences of meaning and how they responded to stuff, which is why I'm specifically careful not to make overgeneralizations other than what I can actually demonstrate from these particular sources, right? These are, I mean, we could argue whether or not they apply consistently to all of Tosafot, but we can certainly say that this does appear in Tosafot. And this logic has uh, uh, been applied by others after Tosafot. So I can definitely say it was certainly influential, right? And it's still applied today. 
And which is why he's saying shul on multiple times on this issue of batel ta'am batel gezeira, popular Ashkenazi practice is comically inconsistent. We don't play by the same rules. A uh, great example here is um, in the four volume, I, I you know, quote this, the four volume book on uh, Hilchot Shabbat by this guy Ribiat, the 39 Malachot, published by Feldheim. Huge, huge collection. So regarding swimming on Shabbat, so swimming is prohibited. Anyone know why it's prohibited to swim on Shabbat? Because you carry it out the water? Nope. You tear a thread when you wring out the... Nope. Good answers. <laughs> but no. It's the most stringent possible... It's published by a Feldheim book. It's the most stringent possible of all the options. No, 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 no. There's actually an, there's a Gemara about this. Okay. You might come to build a raft. <laughs> out of reeds. Now, so there it says, even though... Let's face it. When was the last time you built a raft? Never. Never. Unless then you built a raft, or at least out of reeds. I mean, even the Mythbusters used duct tape, right? There's actually an episode on that, like duct tape island, like surviving on an island for a certain amount of time using only duct tape. Anyway, um, there they say, even though the reason no longer applies, the decree is still there. Fine. When it comes to dancing and clapping on Shabbat and Yom Tov, they rely on the toast vote, right? So when does it apply? When does it not apply? In a very intelligent argument that I saw in response to by the conservative movement, when they were arguing why it is now okay to eat fish and meat on the same plate, which the Talmud says it's because of danger, sakana, one of their footnotes is, but hey, we don't do mayamachronin, so why should this be any different? And it's really hard if you're, you know, to argue against that logic if you're going to be inconsistent and to say at least that, well, it applies in these cases but not others, unless you are effectively acting as, I hesitate to use the term here, but a reconstructionist, by which I mean you are reconstructing the narrative, the, you're, sorry, let me step back, you are reconstructing the halachic narrative to how did you get to where you are today. But a problem, of course, is you're assuming that what you do today is correct. Uh, and one of my you know, arguments against that is, well, if whatever the, you know, what we do today happens to be correct, then why is it Mashiach come? Because, you know, clearly, you know, you can always find some justification for something. Um, yeah. Any other questions? I'm sure you got dozens. <laughs> but, all right. Well, so, so how does an Orthodox Jew respond to the conservative argument you just gave about fish and meat? Uh, you'd have to ask them. I mean, not to say that I'm not an Orthodox well, Jew, but I would say you have to do my mahrodin. And you have to separate fish and meat. Why? Because you have a rabbinic decree and we don't have a Sanhedrin which overturned it. But what I, I also don't dance and clap on Shabbos and Yom Tov. Yeah, I've had lots of fights with this way back when. Simcha Star was not fun. <laughs> yeah. But when I asked you about Batel Tam, Batel Gezerah, Yeah. And you said, well, there's only two cases in the Talmud where, where they maintain it. Ah, this split. So you have, I mean, so presumably. But it's all that in Beza. But it's, no, but I mean, in terms of explicitly, it was in Beza. was when you actually have the case where it's exp- explicitly rejected. Right. Right? But it, it's rejected under the form of, And that gets, is really indisputed. Hmm. Right? Any other questions? Thoughts. It just seems interesting that I mean, the rabbis had to be influenced by the surrounding philosophies and science, etc. And if 
shaped the way they viewed <coughs> the market. Oh, that, that is without question. If anyone's interested, my father's uh, Rebbe, Chacham uh, Yosef Faur, wrote an article in English on the legal approach of the Baalei Tosafot, in which he argues how their methodology of textual analysis mimicked the Catholics um, who were surrounding them. If uh, you remind me, I'd be more than happy to send you a link to the article. All right. So if anyone reminds me, please happy to do so. That's actually in English, uh, and easier to follow than the other sources I can give you. All right. No other questions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day.